Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfers. The history of agriculture and how it spread is a subject that never fails to produce. Starting with my hero Nikolai Vavilov, the core accepted idea is that there were a few places where the major crops were domesticated and that from there they spread out, either diffusing from one group to its neighbours or carried along by the first farmers as they moved and settled in new places. The details, though, are sketchy, to say the least. Favilov had almost nothing in the way of archaeological evidence to guide him, just incredible powers of observation and a lust for travel. But more recently, archaeologists of a certain stripe have uncovered lots of evidence on which to build a much more complete story. One of the pioneers of this new strand of archaeology is Martin Jones, recently retired as Pitt Rivers Professor of Archaeology in Cambridge. He and some colleagues have just published a paper setting out a new picture of the spread of food and farming. It's called From Ecological Opportunism to Multicropping, Mapping Food Globalization in Prehistory. And that phrase, food globalization in prehistory, is certainly intriguing. One reason Martin Jones likes it is that it prompts some of the same discussions about early people as we're having about modern food systems. But there's another, more loaded reason, too. Yeah, to challenge the idea about farming communities being inward-looking, conservative and localised. So, to sort of pose a challenge. Jones has spent all his working life studying the archaeology of crop plants. And the challenge, essentially, is to other archaeologists, who seem to think that once the dull old farmers have done the essential work of domesticating wheat and rice and what have you, that the rest of the story is down to chiefs and kings and merchants. It isn't, as the paper makes very clear, and as we're about to hear. But what triggered Martin Jones' interest in prehistoric food globalisation? That We came across a few Chinese plants in Europe, and when I say Chinese plants, they were plants, millet plants, uh, that botanists know of as coming from Chinese groups of plants. But they were there in very small quantities, and so no one had taken a lot of notice of them. Uh, the main story in Europe had been wheat and barley and so forth, and there were just these millet seeds floating around. And it actually, it actually started with me wondering why there were a few Chinese plants in the larger wheat and barley story in Europe. And I followed that to China, and it was subsequently that I got interested in the issue of spread in its own right and what that meant about how farmers lived in this world and what their lives were like. So what are the, you, you mentioned millets and wheat and barley, what are the main crops you were focused on in the study? We started off by following millet. Millet was the puzzle. Why was millet in early sites in Europe? And uh, it took us to China at a very timely moment when our colleagues in China were taking on new scientific methods in archaeology. And when we met them and saw the exciting work they were doing, not only were they finding lots of really good stuff about Chinese crops in China, China. they were also finding wheat and barley <laughs> in China, in the same way as we were finding millet in Europe. So, so it was a two-way process. You mentioned this research. I continue to be amazed by 
how you actually find millet seeds. I can barely find them in my kitchen. How do you find <laughs> millet seeds in a dig in the ground? Yeah, well, uh, most of my career has been looking at things like rubbish pits and the remains of fireplaces using actually incredibly simple methods. One of the major methods I've used in my career is to take archaeological sediment, just stuff that's being dug up in a normal way, and putting it in a bucket of water and seeing what floats to the top. And with the naked eye, it's a lot of black dust. Uh, but you just put that under, dry it out and put it under a microscope. And you can see, actually, it's burnt stuff, so it turns to carbon, but, but surprisingly intact um, pieces of old cereal. If, if you think about a piece of charcoal, when we look at a piece of charcoal, we can see that although it's burnt, all the kind of raisin cells are still there. So you can imagine that with a bit of cereal grain under the microscope. You've got all that detail too. So although it looks like black dust, under a microscope, you can see what you're looking at. And yes, even tiny little grains of millet. And it's it's as simple as, well, I'm sure it's a bit more a bit more advanced than chucking it in a bucket. But basically, that's what you're doing. Flotation has always been like the, the starting point, And that's where we get a mass of data. Then two other things happened in terms of the uh, development of archaeological science. One was we, we realized how much information we can get from human bones about what they ate. And that's by using isotopic chemistry of one form or other. So we can go along the pathways and uh, if there are cemeteries that are being excavated, we can actually look in the bones and say who was eating millet, who was eating wheat and how much of it they were eating. So that's a terrific... Uh, addition to the story and the third thing is just like so many fields in science archaeology is being transformed by genetics we can look at the genetics of the plants and get ideas and hypotheses from that about how they moved around we can look at the genetics of uh, the people and see what they ate we can also look at the genetics of the plants to see how they've changed as they move around so th those are the three sets of methods very simple stuff with a bucket of water a bit more complicated stuff with human bone chemistry. And then every new advance in genetics opens up new possibilities about how we might add to the story. I didn't know you could see what crops people were eating from the bones. I know you can tell whether they're eating meat. I mean, whether they're eating sort yeah. of high up on the, on the food chain or low down on the food chain. But I didn't know you could do that for plants. So it, you, you could split them up into groups. And it's rather fortunate. It's a bit of luck that millets have a different way of uh, photosynthesizing, a different way of capturing light than wheat and barley. So it's, it's slightly convenient, if I can put it that way, that uh, the crops that are moving backwards and forwards have a different way of photosynthesizing. And uh, with looking at the carbon isotope specifically, if you're fortunate about the pattern you're looking at, you can discriminate um, in that way. Okay, let's let's go back to the to the to what you actually found. Um, you divide it into sort of into three time periods, and there's mm. the very early one, which I associate with domestication, with the start of agriculture. So, what's going on there, and and where are plants moving during that time? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, researchers around the world have have uh, repeatedly established is domestication. Uh, often goes on in parts of the landscape where small groups of people 
can rely on water. Um, and relying on water means that it's, it's there all year round, not necessarily in large quantities, but it's there in your, all year round. It's not um, turbulent and dangerous like the big rivers, and it's not going to dry up. And typically, again and again, the hilly flanks at the base of the mountains are where that works. You've got these small mountain streams coming off. If, if they dry up a bit, you can go higher altitude, and you've just got small streams, so you don't have to negotiate with anybody. And again and again, it's those places where small streams are moving around where domestication uh, starts. And so there's quite, it's not exclusively on hilly flanks or foothills, but that's where a lot of domestication um, goes on. And although one thinks of these small farming communities as, as growing their wheat, they do have to move around uh, at minimum to get marriage partners. That might be one of the main drivers of not just staying in one place all the time. And what we can see in that first period that you talked about is a sort of spreading out along those foothills. And actually in the West, and this isn't new knowledge, it's just mapping what's known already, that spreading out has already been quite extensive. Uh, getting to the Hindu Kush and so forth from the, the Near East, that happened pretty early. Less so in the East, but still a bit of movement around. Okay, so, so basically this is farmers who are f they're growing their crops and they're finding essentially the same kind of place to keep growing those crops. That's right. So that's step one, gets us from mm -hmm. whenever, 10,000, 14,000 to 5,000 years ago. Absolutely. Then what starts to happen? Again, there, are these, there is this clinging to the foothills, but at least some farmers going a long way and getting uh, considerable distances across the continent and, a continent and the crops moving around as well. What we can start seeing is, uh, again, within those same foothill locations, some instances of wheat and barley getting all the way to China and some instances of the millets getting all the way into the West. Again, with that, that method of bone chemistry that I, I spoke about, particularly with the millets, you can see it sort of trickling in. You can see individual more or less individual farm families that are eating lots of millet, surrounded by one or two that are eating a bit of millet. You can see it kind of trickling in. Hmm. So it's not a great invading force. It's a, it's a trickle amongst a chain of farmers who are in touch with each other. Now this is the old sort of diffusion versus um, actual carrying. It looks like, could, can you tell the difference between as it were, one band learning from the band next to them versus a man or a woman taking their techniques with them when they join another band? Yes, you could, you could distinguish various things. And again, that's where genetics come in, because with, from the human genetics, you can see uh, the human movements. And what one can say is it isn't, it isn't like a great emigration of, of people or anything. I think it's a trickle with the crops and a trickle with the human genetics, too, at first. Uh, it's difficult to pin this down. A big driver could ju be just meeting with strangers. Um, and one of the main things that comes out of that is the possibility of finding marriage partners. What we can see is that there's not a lot of trade going on at this stage. All of these uh, trickles of genes are several centuries before 
there's the movement of some object that we could say is a trade. So it's not like that. They may be meeting over campfires and socialising and so forth and sharing uh, crop, but there isn't a lot of, uh, of, uh, of trade. So it's a trickle, probably by neighbour-to-neighbour contact. So at this point, they're, they're more widely spread, they're quite far apart, but aren't you now starting to get into issues that the environment isn't the same as where the crops were originally domesticated and grown. So what's changing? Are the crop, you, you, you say you can look at the DNA of the crops. Can you, can you see new farming techniques? Can you see new ways of growing the crops? You can see a, a number of key things there. On the one hand, there'll be a lot of, of aspects of the new environments that are familiar. Those foothills are familiar. There will be lots of aspects of change, and some of which we can see more closely, others we can't. One of the fascinating things of change, which we can see in the genes, is the seasons will change slightly. As you move around the world, um, summer and winter come at different times, the rains come at different times, and if you take a plant where it is evolved, then it has many mechanisms where it does things at the right time. You know, it doesn't germinate in the middle of the winter and it doesn't start setting seeds when, when uh, there's no water around. So, so there's lots of triggers. And one of the triggers that's terribly important is day lengths. So a lot of plants, the reason that they all flower at the same time, they all germinate at the same time, is there's some very sort of sensitive triggers that when the days get shorter in a certain way or longer in a certain way, uh, then that's when they'll flower. One of the things that's happening as these plants move around is the environmental triggers are all wrong. And we can see by looking at the genetics of the plants what's ha- what happened and how the, how the farmers cope with that. And what happened is you see a new form of plant, not with a new seasonality response, but the existing one switched off. So in genetic terms, typically a mutation comes in, it's like a spanner in the works, and it switches that off. You can ask, what, what happens with a plant that doesn't have any environmental response? Well, in that case, it can't do any response on its own. It's reliant on the farmer to decide when it gets watered, when it gets planted. So switching those genes off means the plant is even more dependent on the farmer. And the farmer needs to have some way of uh, deciding how to adapt to the new uh, seasons. And we can follow that switching off of genes quite closely. So now the farmer needs a calendar. The farmer needs to be able to predict the seasons and floods and all of that. I'm trying very hard not to go down all these rabbit holes. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd be here forever. And? Full disclosure, we did go down a few rabbit holes. But to get back to the main story, starting around four and a half thousand years ago, the whole thing goes crazy. People are everywhere, and most of the crops are everywhere too. And farming systems have gone through what the paper refers to as disassembly and reassembly. If one, if one takes those crops moving around amongst farmers who are 
exploring new calendars, thinking about how to do the traditional thing in a new place, in a new hilly flank, during the course of the, millen- uh, the second millennium. So it, the disassembly is taking fragments from different parts of the world and locating them together. As you move through the, the second millennium, the reassembly is the traditional crops that were there, plus these new crops. And the reassembly is when it's no longer an adaptation to strange places. It's, it's a reassembled group of plants and, and animals in a landscape in which there is now confidence and generations of knowledge. And those crops and, and resources have different attributes. And one of the attributes they have is the ones that are local and have been there all the time are still locked into the to the local environment and those that are from a long distance have had those environmental genes switched off so there's one that still grows in the season that they're fixed hardwired to grow in and the others that grow in the season that the farmer chooses so immediately you have the the possibility of multi-cropping a corollary of that in order to do that is you have to be able to uh, manage the water. To some extent, you have to be able to manage the temperature, which you can do by the way that you cultivate the soil, the way you protect it and so forth. But you have to be able to manage the water in the off season. And so there's, there's another element of the story is you're much more confident about the water itself and how you share that water with your neighbors. I say share, it may not be that <laughs> how you control the water <laughs> access. And that's what allows uh, these communities to go down into the more complicated big rivers. And also for going up the slopes, you've got the resilience that's, that you get out of having a multi-cropping system. Yeah, that's yeah. right. How does this all fit what you know now um if i could conjure up nikolai vavilov and say okay tell him what he what he got right and what he got wrong i think that that vavilov got so much right so the thing that would be new for him is that shifting up into the foothills a number of his centers aren't quite in the right place but it's 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 not conceptually wrong you just need to shift them up into the foothills i think the the group of of uh, archaeologists that would be more surprised were those who who had the mindset that that after domestication that's the end of the job of the plants then it's on to serious kings and chieftains and traders and so forth i think what these patterns show is no actually those farming communities have complicated lives too they're not all conservative they have to change what they do adapt to new environments and to a great extent, if we move right forward to, say, 1200 BC, when you, you've certainly got something you might call a trading silk road, that's actually utilising a geography of contact that was built up by generations of farmers. And so they're very much involved in that story. I know I'm biased, but I find it really pleasing that bits of burnt seeds and plant remains, along with long-buried bones and some up-to-date chemistry and molecular biology, that they can paint a much more complete picture of the spread of humanity. 
and we didn't even have time to get to the other important millets spreading out from sub-Saharan Africa and over to India and Southeast Asia. It's neat, too, that lapis lazuli moving out of Afghanistan and jade moving out of China travelled along the same routes as wheat and barley and rice before them. So you can forget about kings and chiefs and merchants and traders. They were all only following in the footsteps of farmers and the prehistoric globalisation of food. My thanks to Martin Jones for taking the time to share his research and to you for listening. That's all for now. Keep the reviews and recommendations and donations coming and look for an animated map of the spread of all those crops on the website at eatthispodcast.com. Also, links to Martin Jones' paper and some other goodies. Till the next time, from me, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye.